Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. All right, well, welcome. If you're new here, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors, and most weeks out of the year, I'm uh, assigned to preach through the gospel, and uh, it is the great joy of my life. You know, um, this year in December will be 20 years, uh, that marks 20 years ago I began in the ministry, and um, <laughs> it's crazy how fast it's gone, and um, as wearying as ministry can be, as some of you can imagine, um, preaching about Jesus, talking about Jesus, and most importantly, getting to stay closer to Jesus um, is the sustaining joy of the Christian life. So if you're not a Christian here today, uh, I just want you to know I did come here with an agenda. I, I do want you to know Jesus completely. Like I want you to convert and be baptized and spend all of your life following the man who is God, Jesus Christ. If you're weary this morning as a Christian, and you're feeling discouraged or down or just as though God is somewhere hidden behind these clouds that decided to show up again today, I want you to know that you belong. And part of the Christian faith is a, is a wearying experience. It is like that. That doesn't make you strange, weird, or out of step even. But disorientation is part of what goes with the Christian faith. And so, if that's you, I'd encourage you to spend some time maybe journeying through the Psalms. Might be good. All right, so with that being said, we're gonna jump right into finishing Mark chapter 10. We're never gonna get out of this book, by the way, but um, <laughs> that's okay. It's not like God's writing another one anyway, so let's just take our time. All right, so, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples and a massive crowd are on their way down to uh, Jerusalem. They're headed toward the Passover. Jesus is from Nazareth, which is about 110, 20 miles away from, from Jericho. They've made a long journey down to the famous city of Jericho, and they're there for, for just a few minutes, and then they begin to take their, the rest of their caravan over to celebrate the Passover in, in Jerusalem. Of course, Jesus has predicted three times that he would be soon betrayed, handed over, arrested, scourged, spit upon, mocked, crucified, buried, and will rise again from the, from the dead on the third day. Jesus is going to die at the Passover feast. And so Jesus is headed toward there, and there's a great crowd. Uh, scholars speculate, you know, upwards of a couple thousand people could be following Jesus in this giant caravan. He's a famous rabbi. He's a miracle-working Messiah figure. And so, of course, the crowds have gathered around him as they are headed toward Jerusalem. And as they are leaving the famous city of Jericho, they find a man named Bartimaeus sitting on the roadside, and he was positioned in a place to beg. The three monotheistic faiths, 
Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all prize and put a premium on serving the poor, on being mindful and being charitable to those in need. And so faithful Jews headed from Jericho to Jerusalem would have been mindful of the poor, especially being at the Passover feast. They remembered that we were once slaves, impoverished people. And so the poor would have been someone, would have been a, a, a kind of person that would have maybe been on the mind of a, of a faithful Jew. Well, Jesus and this massive crowd are on their way out and they see a man that's positioned for high foot traffic and a lot of people to come by and he's begging. He's a blind man. A couple of little details about this verse here. Mark actually gives us the name of the man, Bartimaeus. Mark never gives the name of the individual. And all of Jesus' healings in Mark's gospel, you never find out the names of the people that are healed. Sure, you have Jairus' daughter, but we don't know her name. We know there's a demoniac, a man possessed with demons, and we get the name of the demons, but we don't get the name of the man. The man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day, we don't get his name. The man with leprosy, right? Uh, we don't get his name. We don't get the name of the paralytic that comes down. He's just these guys' friend. Like, we never get the names of the people, but Mark here tells us this man's name is Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus. Why would Mark tell us this? Um, most scholars kind of speculate as to whether Bartimaeus might have actually been known to the early church in Rome. Mark is writing to Christians in Rome, and Bartimaeus might have actually belonged to that congregation. Can you imagine being Bartimaeus in church reading Mark's gospel and you, they get to this part and like, oh my gosh. <laughs> That's my. And his dad, Timaeus, is like, we're in the book. Oh my gosh. Anyway, so that's where, why Mark is including this most likely is that this was a figure, this son and father would have been known in the first century Roman church, which I loved. I love knowing that. It feels very real. So, there's something else to be worth noting about the blind, especially in this very Jewish context. Do you remember the book of Job, how Job is going through overwhelming suffering? And what do his three friends do? They show up, and they're silent for a minute, and it's great. <laughs> and that's the best part of the book, where no one says anything. And then one finally goes, all right, I'll ask, what'd you do? <laughs> Why are you suffering like this? God's keeping score with us down here, you know, so obviously you've sinned against God somehow. This is why you're suffering. That's the only way to actually explain it, right? And then Job is having to put up with their pedantic, just ad nauseum questioning. That's how their theology worked for the day. The same happens, it's still, it's still happening on, in Jesus' day. Remember in John chapter nine, there's another blind man. He was born blind, and the people come to Jesus and they begin to say, hey, who sinned? Big Bible word there, who sinned? Who offended God that this guy didn't just lose his sight, this guy was born blind? Who sinned? This man, was he gonna commit some grave sin later in his life? Was that it? Or... Was it his parents? Did his parents have a sin? And so is God like punishing everybody because something mom or dad did? And Jesus responds, it's not about sin. 
Oh, sin- this, this, this man was born blind, and he turns around and turns it to the glory of God, and he heals the man. But that was the way people thought. If you were born blind or if you had lost your sight, God must be judging you for something. So fess up is basically how people thought of the day. But then Jesus comes on the scene and starts saying things like, well, you know, it, we love this verse in Seattle. It rains on the just and the unjust. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it rains on the just and the unjust. Or in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, don't forget, in the sermon on the plain, Jesus says, don't forget, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Oh, well, that's not karma. That, that's different. That's grace. So he begins to undo some of their theological thinking of the day. I wasn't going to tell the story. I think I will. It's a question mark still in my notes. So here you go. We'll go for it. Why not? Um, to this point on karma, or like the universe is looking out for you or something, it's not. It's just not. And I don't mean that in an ugly way if that's you and you're like, I actually really believe in the universe. I believe in the universe, just not in a personal way. And nor do Christians. There's a distinction between creator and creation. And we worship our creator, and we steward creation. A few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, we were down at Disneyland, the happiest place in the world. (laughs) And I almost got robbed. Anyway, (laughs) and my back still hurts, but it was the happiest, I'll tell you. Um, And so that one morning, um, we... uh, uh, Jan and I had gone to the grocery store. It was a no park day. It was just pool day. If you go to Disneyland, you got to break it up. Once you get past 40 years of age or you will die. Anyway, so it's like, so we, were, we went to the grocery store, a place called Ralph's, and um, I was going to make uh, Hawaiian ribeyes for everybody that evening. And they're, they're actually perfect. They're, that's a perfect thing to eat, by the way. So anyway... So I had this butcher slice up several, you know, ribeyes for us, and we check out, and we had rented a Tesla to drive around. Some of my friends have Teslas here, and it was very cool, and Jude messed the whole thing up. Like, it looks like Santa's sleigh. There were whoopee cushions going off constantly. Like, anyway, we had rented this Tesla, and the way you get in and out of a Tesla is with, with like a, something like a, like a card where you tap on the door, uh, and there's no key. Well, Jan and I got the groceries to the, to the car. I figured out how to open the, tr- the trunk. That was a job. Um, we loaded the groceries in, and then I returned my shopping cart, because I'm a good person, and I returned my shopping cart inside. But when I returned the shopping cart and came back to the car, I looked around, I was like, oh, where's the, the little card? The, where's my wallet? Oh, no. It's not in here. It's, we go through the groceries, not in the groceries. Oh, gosh, I wonder if I accidentally put it in the, in the cart and returned it. So I went back inside, and, of course, the cart's gone. I'm like, okay, now I've lost a Tesla key. We've got groceries here. I don't know how do you tow a Tesla. I don't know. Like, does Elon show up? Like, <laughs> what? he's not coming for you. Um, he's in space. So I, <laughs> we're just like, what do we do? And so... 
I tell Jana, I've lost the wallet. And she's like, okay, I'm going to stalk everybody in this grocery store. And she begins to like walk around and just see and starts talking to people. Hey, is there a, did, did somebody leave a, a, a wallet in your, in your cart? No, 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 no. And she's talking to the, the manager at the front. And one guy who looks suspicious uh, was eavesdropping on Jana's conversation with the, the, the manager and says, uh, what are you missing? And the manager looks at Jana's like, that's your guy. <laughs> and um, Jana said, well, my husband, he, he thinks he left his wallet in a cart in here. He's outside. I'm out there like scrambling, praying, talking to the security officer, whatever. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. Maybe you'll, maybe it'll, maybe you'll find it. And of course, Janet came out, no luck, no luck. Um, and then she calls me as the guy that had asked about the wallet was walking out of the grocery, and she says, I think this dude has your wallet. I was like, oh, man, well, what do you want me to do? And she's like, I don't know. I was like, I can't just roll up on a guy and be like, empty your pockets, man. Like, I can't. <laughs> What do I do? But I got to get this stupid key back, and I got to know. And I had been asking everybody out in the parking lot. And so this dude walks out with his friend, and they walk around the corner. And so I'm just like, whatever, I'm going for it. So I ran around the corner of the grocery store. There's a guy's by the dumpster. And I just said, hey, I'm looking for a wallet. I'm asking everybody out here. I don't mean to, like, accuse you, whatever. I'm looking for a wallet, and me and my family are, like, totally up a creek at this point. Did you, did you guys happen to see one? And one responds, you know, if I found a wallet, I'd empty it of its cash and probably give it back to you. But no. I was like, well, okay. Um, I was like, in theory, if I had my wallet, I could just go get money out of an ATM and give you cash or take you into the grocery store and just buy you whatever you want. And he's like, yeah, sorry. I was like, okay, well, thanks anyway. Have a good day. I'm going to keep looking. So I went around back to the front talking to Jana. No luck on the wallet. And then five minutes go by and the dude walks around the corner and he holds up my wallet and he goes, hey, is this, is this the wallet you're looking for? I was like, yes, yes. And it has that magic key in it that I can drive this magic robot car out of here. Yeah, I was like, yeah, that's my wallet. And he goes, yeah, I am... Um, my mom didn't raise us like this. And I just, I don't want to bring bad karma on myself or my brother. And so I feel like I should just give it back. Oh, well, I don't believe in karma. <laughs> but I do believe in a personal God of grace. He goes, so what does that mean? I was like, well, that means I'll still give you the, like, the money I mentioned five minutes ago around the corner, I'll still go get money out of an ATM for you or take you guys in here and buy you whatever you want out of the grocery store. That's not the point. Like, I do believe in grace still, like I did a minute ago. He's like, oh, well, that's, that's not really necessary. We don't really, we don't really need anything. We'll be fine. Okay. I was like, well, my name's Alex, and this is my wife, Jana. And he's like, well, my name's Sean, and my brother's name is Jake. I was like, awesome, well, Thanks for bringing my wallet back. That, that means a lot to me. And he gave me a hug. Like, I'm like, this is crazy. And like, we went back to the car and like, 
those were the best ribeyes of my life. That was the best ribeye I'll ever have, but because of the story that went with it. All that to say, there is something about grace that is so much more beautiful than karma. And the universe isn't looking out for you, nor was the universe punishing this guy here. So he continued. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay. And this word son of David is new to the gospel of Mark. It basically just means Messiah, a great political, mighty, anointed king, leader of the people that will overthrow Rome. He's a miracle working man. And so he just begins to cry out, son of David, Messiah, the one of God, have mercy on me. And the word mercy, the word mercy is a beautiful Greek word, but it, it, it doesn't mean just to have a feeling for people's misfortune, like pity. It means something beyond that. When he says, have mercy on me, he says, I want you to feel so deeply that you might be inclined to do something on my behalf. It's as close to compassion as you can get. Have mercy on me. He wants Jesus to do something about his situation. In fact, the cry of mercy is at the heart of every encounter that a human being can have with God. Like, do you remember the famous story in Luke 18 where the, the Pharisee and the sinner both end up at the temple at the same time? And the Pharisee begins to pray very loudly and say things like, God, I fast twice a week and I give all my money to the poor and I'm so thankful that you didn't make me like this guy this rotten sinner over here, and the guy can hear him. He's like, I can hear you, man. Like, dude. And then the sinner begins to pray. The sinner can talk to God too, you know. And as he does, he begins to say and beat on his own chest and say, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, who do you think went home justified that day? Mercy is at the very heart of the encounter of a human being with God. If we'll just get honest, you will always find a merciful father. So he begins to cry out for mercy. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. How cruel of this crowd, by the way, don't you think? There's a blind man on the side of the road and he's just asking for mercy, some help. And everybody begins to go like, no, 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 be quiet. Like, well, that's awfully harsh to hate on a blind man. And then again, at the same time, the crowds were doing what the disciples had done earlier with the children. You remember the, when their parents are bringing children to Jesus and the disciples are like, no, 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 he doesn't have time for this. And Jesus rebukes the disciples and says, the kingdom belongs to children you got to become like kids, right? The idea is that what the disciples were doing, now the crowds were emulating just a couple days later, and they were just doing what we do. We tend to think that people of power and influence, like Jesus in that moment, would only have time for people of power and influence. After all, if you're into climbing a social and religious ladder, boy, you don't make time for the marginalized. But Jesus 
wasn't interested in climbing a social or religious ladder. He was the one who'd come down. So they began to rebuke him. And he began to cry out all the more. He gets louder. (laughs) Of all the virtues that I think Jesus likes the most, I think it's persistence. It's the one he talks about a lot. The, The resolve, the steadfast, the never quit. That's the one that Jesus talks about the most, I think. The ones that'll stay with it and keep pressing on. Like, do you remember the parable of the persistent widow? This woman got ripped off and she kept going to the judge saying, I'm owed a lot of money right here. I'm being put out on the street. And the, the judge was more or less completely indifferent. It even goes as far as to say in the parable, I don't fear God or care what people have to think of me. It's in Luke's gospel. And it says literally, uh, but because she keeps coming back to me, I suppose I'll just give her justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Jesus is saying, be persistent like this widow. Or my favorite one is where Jesus says in Luke 11, he says, um, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread at midnight. Can you imagine? (laughs) A friend of mine's on a journey. He's come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers and says, don't bother me, the door's already locked, my children and I were in bed, I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you that even though he will not give up, get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it'll be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be open. So Jesus tells this parable, saying like, keep banging on the door in the middle of the night. It's not just friendship that will get my father out of bed. Sometimes you just gotta keep on banging away. I just love that he painted his own father like that in a parable. So going, well, I asked him once. I did pray once. I fasted for like 30 minutes. Like, certainly, where's my answer, Lord? Or where's the, and Jesus is saying, no, keep banging away. My father can appear as though he's a little stubborn sometimes. So keep going. This is what Jesus loves about people, the ones who just keep on persisting, who just won't quit. Now, there's a curious thing about Mark's gospel. Remember the, What's the word that you see more than any word in the, in the book? Does anybody know? Come on, you can say it. It's a church. One word, immediately. Remember that one? Where it's, it, shows, it shows up 41 times in the gospel of Mark. And immediately, Jesus healed this guy. And immediately, he walked on water. Immediately, he drove out the demons. And immediately, 41 times in the gospel of Mark, he uses the word immediately. And it's not because Mark is dull and doesn't have a great vocabulary. It's because Mark is intentionally painting Jesus as a man of action, somewhere to be. He has come to accomplish something. He is not a stolled, cold Roman stoic. He is man moving on mission. That's why Mark uses the word immediately so much, okay? So he's hurried almost, it appears. And then verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they began to call the man, the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Jesus stopped. 
dead in his tracks after all of this hurry, 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 driving out demons, walking on water, feeding thousands of people, emptying out the hospitals, healing the sick and the lame and the paralytics and the lepers. He stops. Not for Pilate, not for Caesar, not for some famous politician or top donor. Jesus stops for someone who can't even see him. Don't be so brazen or brash as to think Jesus acts like us at all. He has time. And if he'll stop for this man in the middle of the desert heat marching toward Passover, he'll stop for you too. Because Jesus was the most present person. I love that. Has he stopped for you? Can you remember when you called out for mercy and you got it? Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus created the cosmos. So does Colossians 1. The Gospels, Matthew and Luke, tell us that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. The, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 says he was completely sinless. So does John chapter 5. Jesus is the one that the Father spoke about at his baptism and at his transfiguration, saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. This Jesus Christ that is going to die and rise from the grave and ascend to the right hand of the Father and one day renew all of creation now just comes stopping dead in his tracks for a blind man, for a poor begging man. Why is this important? Why stop? There's thousands behind him at this point. And come the following Sunday, he'll resurrect from the grave and soon there will be millions around the globe following him. So what's the point in stopping for this guy? Because Jesus always cares about one. He's always saying things like that, isn't he? Like the coin that got lost under the couch cushion and the woman swept the house. She had nine more coins, but she wanted her tenth. Like the sheep that got away. Like the son that went astray. He always leaves 99 for one. Of course he's standing there saying, go get him. Bring him here. This is why we keep preaching the gospel, not just from a pulpit, but with our daily lives with our neighbors, because Jesus is still interested in the one. Your coworker, your neighbor, your family member, that when they seem so far gone and their hearts are too hard and they have too many questions and there's all this, Jesus cares for the one. Jesus loves the one. Especially the one that people have given up on and have pushed to the edge. Jesus loves and will stop. He's not too busy. So, throwing off his cloak, 
he sprang up and came to Jesus. So as he throws his cloak off, this would have been the man's prized possession. It was essentially his blanket that he that kept warm with at night. He throws his cloak off. And if you read the gospel slowly, remember at the beginning of the, or in chapter 10, and at the end of nine rather, there was the rich young ruler who came to Jesus that had everything. And Jesus says, drop a few things, come follow me. And he won't. He holds on to his stuff. But this man, the poor man, has one thing, and he gets rid of it. He throws it off. And Mark is showing this was a significant moment. He just drops it all. He just drops it. And he springs up, and he's brought to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. He asked him so plainly, what do you want me to do for you? And I love that Jesus puts the onus back on the man. For some, it might seem obvious. Like, Jesus, why give this man a question to answer? Um, isn't it obvious? He's blind. Why question him? In fact, Jesus, why'd you single him out? I mean, you could have just walked by and given a simple nod. Why single him out, bring him in front of thousands, and do it this way? Why stop? I suspect it's because Jesus wants the man to articulate for himself his great need. And more than that, Jesus is also gaining permission to engage the man. He honors the man's space, his story, his physical body. Love is not coercive. So he honors the man's suffering. He did the same thing in John chapter five with the man who couldn't walk. It says when Jesus saw him lying there, and knew he had been laying there for a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What a funny question. Why ask the suffering if they want to be healed? Because some people genuinely don't want to be. Some people become defined by their pain, their grief, their loss, their trauma, their setback, and it becomes an identity. It becomes a way they see the world. It becomes the way that they cope. It becomes who they are. I am the result of my condition or my circumstance. Do you want to be healed? Do you? Because after I get involved, Jesus is saying, everything's going to change. Do you want to let go of this way that you see yourself and see the world? Do you want to be made well? Do you? Do you? Do you? Do you? Like, it's not just about stewarding your pain. You might actually have to steward a miracle. And that's another thing. Do you want the story that says I was lost and then I was found? Do you want the story that says I was blind and now I see? Do you want the story that says I was dead and now made alive? Do you want God to get involved? Even after he gets involved, you know, it requires a tremendous amount of humility to say, I can't believe he got involved and to point to where you were and to what he's bringing you through. Do you want a savior? 
The lordship of Jesus is offensive, but so is being saved. Do you? If Jesus were to approach you today, would you tell him what you want healing for or from? Maybe it's a relationship. And Jesus said to him, he says, I want my, my sight back, Rabbi. Help me recover my sight. He, had, he was able to see at one time. He's lost the ability to see. Help me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And he doesn't. <laughs> he says immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Think of all the people, the nine lepers, where Jesus heals people and they take off and they never come back. Or Jesus heals somebody and says, now don't tell anybody what I did for you. Just keep that between us. This man, Jesus says, just go on back about your life, man. And he says, no, I'm going to follow you. And so he just gets into the crowd of the couple thousand people standing behind Jesus like, I'm going to go with them because the one who saves is the one who can sustain the rest of my life. Imagine that, to get his sight back and the first face he sees is there's Jesus with the biggest grin from eye to eye going, go on, you can go now. And he sees Jesus face to face and says, I gotta follow you to the end. So what about you? What has Jesus done for you? How has he stopped in your life? Are you following him? Are you tempted to deconstruct and get off the path now? Five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years into following him? Remember, he opened your eyes. So the good news of the gospel is about trading places. It's about moving out and moving in. The next time you see darkness highlighted, Mark says this. When the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus went into the blindness into the darkness to trade places with every last one of us who would say, please be merciful to me. And the answer is always yes. You belong with the Father because of the perfect work of the Son and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus loves you. Okay, let's call it there, yeah? Mark chapter 10's done. We're never getting out. There's four more chapters.